Well, I didn't go uh, and count them all. I'm relying on the work of someone else. Uh, I read somewhere that there are about 400 references to peace in the Holy Scripture, in the Bible. There are 400 references uh, to peace. And I, I would say that that doesn't surprise me. In fact, uh, it seems like a low estimation. Peace, shalom is perhaps the grand, the grand motif of Scripture. It's the, the big story arch. If, if, if the, the, the narrative of, of the Bible were to be a, and I say this reverently, were to be a TV series, a TV show spanning across multiple seasons, the, the theme of peace would be the, the story arch that connects season one to 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 the last season, the last episode. And I say this reverently, but it's true. It is about peace. The story of the Bible begins with peace in the garden, and it ends with peace in glory. And throughout in the middle, we find that from Genesis 3, peace was lost, and there is only war and, and, and strife. Man's sin interrupted the peace that existed in the garden. And the story of the Bible is the story of how God is coming to, recon to restore that peace. The climax of history is the coming of the Son of God into the world as the Prince of Peace to make a reconciliation, to to. Make peace with God, between man and God. That is the story of Scripture. So, as we come to Matthew 5, chapter 9, we need to bear in mind all the ways that Scripture puts in, the, in, in this word, in this concept. And not allow just the simplicity of the word peace uh, as it... Uh, or what it means in our own day to define the meaning of peacemakers, but to bring into the word peace, shalom, or the Greek irene, uh, uh, to bring the, the weight of Scripture into peace, uh, of peace, into this term, peacemakers. In each of our studies of the Beatitudes, I think it's been clear that there is something deeply countercultural about each of the Beatitudes. We've, I think, in all of them, I, I would have to go back to say in all of them, but I, I do believe in, in most of them, we've started by comparing what Jesus says to what the world thinks and how countercultural, how polemical, and how offensive some of the statements uh, or all of the statements that Jesus makes in the Beatitudes are to the world, how they are not natural, the natural way of thinking of our culture, of, or of any culture for that matter. Unregenerate men don't think in terms of what the Beatitudes say. And some of them are clearly obvious. I think it is obvious that, that there is a, a, a deep contrast between the words of Jesus in blessed are the poor in spirit to the way that the world thinks. 
That's obvious. That doesn't need a lot of unpacking. The world doesn't think that being poor in spirit is a good thing. The world doesn't think that mourning is a good thing. The world doesn't think that being meek is a good thing. But then you come to some other uh, Beatitudes, and although they are still equally countercultural, it is not at, at, its, uh, at face value as easy to see the contrast. It doesn't mean that the contrast is not there. It just means that we have a, a, a limited understanding of what is being said there. And I, what I want to do this morning, as we, uh, this morning, this evening as we start, is to show you that, in fact, peace is not what this world wants. Being a peacemaker is deeply countercultural. Uh, it's deeply anti-natural for mankind. You might ask, who is against peace? That's so weird. You, last year, and throughout this year as well, we've seen the war in Ukraine break, and everyone is for peace. How is being a peacemaker, uh, in the way that Jesus says here, countercultural? Well, are we really for peace in this world of ours? Do we really want to live in peace? Or does mankind really want to live in peace? Oh, you might say, oh, we even have a Nobel Prize that is given to people who want peace. Our, our, our cultural icons, so there was this uh, pop, uh, pop music uh, uh, band uh, group that, that, that had this song that says, give peace a chance. So how can you say that peace is something that the world frowns upon? Uh, the way I would say it is that the world is not for peace, really, but the world is for comfort. The world wants comfort, not peace. Peace is a, a much greater peace, as the Bible understands it. It's a much more, uh, much greater, much deeper concept than what the world thinks when we think of peace. Peace is not simply just the absence of conflict, is it? According to scripture, for the world, peace is not, no one is drawing weapons, no one is firing guns. But is that really peace? Could you say that there is peace between North Korea and South Korea in our day? Could you say that there was peace in, during the Cold War? Peace is not simply the absence of conflict, but we'll get there in a moment. Perhaps the best way to understand this is to look at the original audience. Who were the people... Uh, listening to the words of, of our Lord Jesus initially in that Sermon on the Mount. Among them were the disciples, and I think they were the, the, the ones to whom Jesus was speaking directly. But there were certainly others there, Pharisees, Jews, listening. And think about what for them peace meant. Or what for them they were looking for in the Messiah? Were they looking for, for peace? Not really. They wanted this warmongering Messiah to come in and to bash some heads and to break some eggs in order for them to be established as the great nation. And I'm not making this up. I'm not uh, implying this from anything. This is the way that they spoke in fact, one could argue that John the Baptist had this kind of sense, seeing all the miracles. He, at one point, he becomes so uh, uh, impatient that he sends and asks, are we to wait for another? Are we to look for another? Where is this great kingdom coming? 
Why? Because they failed to understand that the kingdom of God was bringing peace. But it's not peace as they define it. It's peace as God has defined it consistently throughout Scripture. It's not peace in the way that the world desires it. Because for the, the Jews, they would say, oh, of course we want peace. Take these, these Romans out. Do away with them. If necessary, by the sword, cut off with their heads. And Jesus says, no, 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 you're not understanding, my dear friends. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Can you see how offensive this would have been? How countercultural this would have been in Jesus' day? Because in the Bible, peace is much more than the absence of conflict. It's much more than the, the, the living in a, in a state of, of no strife. It is about reconciliation. It is about restoring relation, true, meaningful, right relationships. And that involves a cost. And it involves an inconvenience that many, and if not all in this world, are not willing to pay for. Why are there so many wars in this world if people love peace that much? Why are there so, so constant international tension? It seems like every, every news cycle there is more war. There is more uh, things that are about to happen. There is this country that is threatening to invade that country. And this country that if this country does this, they're going to use this weapon. There seems to be no peace. Is it, is it really that mankind desires peace? They may pay leap, lip service to it, but ultimately there is no desire for peace in mankind, and that's seen in the way that, that the world goes. Why is that? Because our hearts hate peace. Our hearts are opposed uh, in their natural state to peace. There, we desire to have discord among nations and among peoples. We are, because of our nature, we desire, or our fallen nature, we desire to be constantly at war. Isn't it interesting that we, uh, after the Second World War, they institute the United Nations, and the, the Charter of the United Nations begins something like the to to. Uh, to end with the scar, scar, scourge, sorry, that's a difficult word to pronounce, to the, with a scourge of war once and for all. They wanted to get rid of war. Ever since the United Nations came, out, came into the scene, there has not been a single day in this world where there has been peace. And here is the greatest institution that mankind can ever be thought to have put together, a nation, an alliance, a league of nations, and yet they accomplish absolutely nothing. Why? Because mankind is rotten at its core. There is no way to have peace. And it's not just among nations. I know I've been focusing on this. But look at our society. Is there peace in our society? Even if we put away with the, the international affairs, you might say, oh, they're too complicated. But is there peace in the UK nowadays? There seems to be eth more ethnic uh, uh, um, strife nowadays than there was a uh, hundred years ago. There seems to be more political, economical, social uh, strife in all areas of life. Why? Because that's how we are made of. That's, that's how we are... Uh, that's our makeup. 
And if there is something like that seems like peace, someone said, and I, I love the way, peace in this world is merely that glorious moment in history where everyone stops to reload their weapons. That is the peace of this world. Even if it seems like everything is going fine, that is not really peace. Everyone's just trying, uh, waiting, biding their, biding their time. And all of a sudden, it breaks out again. That's not the peace that the Bible speaks of. The peace that the Bible speaks of is, is an eternal peace, a peace that cannot be taken away, a peace like the world doesn't know it and cannot give it. That's what Christ says. That's why the world is a power keg. So let me try and define peace for you in the, in the moments that we have. First, I will start by saying what peace is not. I think I've been saying a, li a little bit, but let me just give it in, in, a, in a few bullet points what peace is not in a negative way, and then I'll, I'll try and say in a positive way what peace is. First of all, peace is not graveyard peace. What do I mean by graveyard peace? You go to a cemetery and everything seems peaceful. Is that peace? That, uh, no. Peace is not the absence of conflict, as I said. That's graveyard peace. Peace is, not more, is much more than the absence of conflict. It is the presence of justice. Peace is the existence of, of reconciliation and true relationships. Peace is not just a suspension of war. It is the creation of justice that brings enemies together in love. Secondly, as I said, peace is not merely a truce. That's what exists between North Korea and South Korea. They're not at war, but they're not at peace. The great difference between truce and peace is, is that truce just means that the shooting stops. There's been no reconciliation. There's been no justice established. There's been no common ground resolved. There has been no embracing of each other. There's still a rift. There's only a truce. There is no bridging. Thirdly, and that's quite common in our own day, and that's where, where we start to see how in our own day we don't desire peace, really. Peace is not fleeing from confrontation. What do I mean? Peace in the Bible... The shalom of scripture never shies away from, script, from problems. It is not a peace at any price. I, I, I remember the, the way that Dietrich Bonhoeffer uh, described the, this uh, kind of cheap grace. The peace of scripture is not a, a cheap peace. It's costly. To proclaim peace where peace doesn't exist, to flee from conflict... To, to, to f pretend that peace is there when it actually isn't is not really peace. That's the words of a false prophet, as Scripture says. The false prophet says, peace, peace, but there is no peace. That's the, 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 the infamous uh, Neville Chamberlain, right? Neville Chamberlain coming from in Germany, from Munich, with, and saying, peace in our time. In just a few weeks, perhaps months, I don't, I don't know the time frame. I'm sure someone will tell me. War broke out. Was there peace? Really? No. It was make up. 
It was just trying to flee from confrontation. There was no reconciliation. There was no mutual uh, uh, relationship. That's not the peace that Bible speaks of. And fourthly, and lastly, peace is not sacrificing the truth. Many today want peace by sacrificing truth. I'll give you a a contextual example that is clear, and I usually avoid this. Yesterday, in the coronation, what, what was happening there? You, you have a, a church of England, a Protestant, let's call it Protestant for the sake of argument, uh, a Protestant service. And then let's bring the Hindu in uh, to, read, to read scripture. Uh, and let's bring the, 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 the Roman Catholic in to, to do a prayer. Let's bring the, the, the other faith religions in to, to be there. What is that? Oh, that's peace. That's union. Look at us. We have peace amongst ourselves. But where is the truth in all of this? Where is the truth in all of this? You know when Jesus says, we'll get there at some point in this exposition once we pick up the pace. But when Jesus says, I came not to bring peace but the sword. What is he saying there? The sword of truth. He came not to bring peace but the sword first. He came to bring the truth. That is the sense of what Jesus says there. But we'll get to that point when we get there. We'll speak about that when we get there. But there is no unity. There can be no peace without truth. If you sacrifice truth, you can never have peace. It's a make-up belief peace. That's why ecumenism, like the one we saw yesterday, is a fallacy. We have no command from Christ to seek unity without purity. Cheap union is not the union, or cheap peace is not the peace that Christ wants us to pursue. Christ has said to us, and I think it is important to remember today, in light of yesterday, have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. So you can have no peace with unfruitful works of darkness. The Bible condemned Josiah's alliance with King Ahab. The Bible commands not to be yoked together with unbelievers. That there can be no partnership between righteousness and wickedness. That there can be no fellowship between light and darkness. So peace cannot be a sacrifice of truth. Having said this, what can peace? What is peace in Scripture? Shalom in Scripture. Peace is a state of harmony. If it's between two men to human beings. It is a state of good relationship, but usually it's referring to the state uh, between God and man. It's a state of a restored, reconciled relationship. It's the freedom from evil. That's what peace means in Scripture. It's a freedom from evil and the presence of all good things. It's a a place of perfect uh, harmony between God and man and man and his neighbor. The peacemaker that Jesus speaks of here is one that is at peace with God and at peace with, with uh, or bringing peace, proclaiming peace to those around him as a ministry, uh, a minister of reconciliation, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, uh, verse, uh, 2 Corinthians 5, from verse 18 to verse 20. A peacemaker, as scripture defines it here, is one who loves his enemies. Blesses those who curse him. Prays for those who persecute him. 
That's what Jesus says here about the peacemakers. But there is no fellowship. And what is the reward? Well, the reward of the peacemaker is to be called the son of God. To be called sons of God. I love the, 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 the Greek term for, for sons. There's, there are two Greek terms that, that can be translated as son. Uh, or are usually translated as son in English. It's the, the word huyos or the word tekna. But the word that is used by Jesus here and by the Apostle Paul in, in his letters is the more reverent, the more uh, honoring term, huyos. You could refer to your children, tekna, uh, but when you refer to, to your children as huyos, you're conferring that dignity, that honor, that consideration. And that's the word that Jesus uses here. First of all, that, that, there, that the peacemaker will be called son of God. And secondly, what we are told in Scripture is that those who are the children of God, the sons of God, are precious. And there are many references to this. And I, I'll just run through a few. Brother and sister, if you're a son or a daughter of God, God refers to you as his treasure. As his jewels, Malachi 3.17, they shall be mine on the day that I make them my jewels. It is said by God that he will give us an eternal name. It is said that he will pour our tears into his bottle. It is said that the death of of his uh, children, of his people, of those who are his, is precious in his sight. To be the child of God is to be made a king, a priest, a prophet. To be made princes. To be made heirs, co-heirs with the Son of God. The Bible says that we are vessels of honor. That we are worthy of honor. I know, shocking. We so often pull, pull ourselves down, and, and, and rightly so. We, the more we decre- decrease, the more Christ increases in a sort of way. What matters is that he increases. But listen to the words of the prophet Isaiah, speaking of the children of God. Isaiah 43, since you were precious in my sight, you have been honored, and I have loved you. Therefore, I will give men for you and people for your life. Fear not, I am with you. We are called the apple of God's eyes. But we are not simply children uh, professed or declared to be children. We are made children through the adoption. We are not born the children of God. I know the world loves to think that we're all sons and daughters of God. And perhaps even Paul uses that sense in, in a very limited way when he addresses the, the Athenians. But really, truly, the children of God are only those who have been purchased by the blood of Christ, who are those who have been declared to be sons through the adoption in the Son. And what does it mean to be adopted? In the world, to be adopted is to be transferred from one family to the other. You no longer belong to this family. You no longer belong to, to, to Adam's family. In the case of, in spiritual terms, you now belong to God's family. In all the benefits that come with it. 
You're no longer a children of wrath. You're a children of you're a child of God. You're 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 a child of grace. You're members of his family. God is your father. Christ is our elder brother. And the saints, you share the same faith, the one baptism, the one Lord. They are your brothers and sisters. Also, to be adopted uh, releases us from the law that belonged to the previous family. Because we were in the family of Adam, and because the family of Adam was enslaved to sin, and now we've been transferred for, to the family of God, you're, you're no longer of an, uh, uh, a member of an enslaved family. You're no longer enslaved to sin. You're now made a child of God. You have been set free from the empire of darkness. You have been seated in heavenly places. You're no longer bound to the power of Satan. He's an old master. He no longer has dominion over you. You are a new creation, as Paul says. But that's where the, the parallels with human adoption end. Because there are differences. Human adoption. I love, and basically this is me just trying to summarize a whole argument that Thomas Watson makes in a few paragraphs. But Thomas Watson speaks of how the human adoption is different from God's adoption. And he says, well, human adoption usually happens when the father and the mother, when the parents lack the capacity to have their own children. This was true then, it is true now. You adopt usually because you, you, you cannot have your own children. But it is not the case with God, is it? God had a, a perfect child. A holy, righteous, perfect child. His relationship with the son is perfect, immutable. He did not need further sons. He was complete in and of himself. Perfect in every single way. We needed the Father to be perfect, to be complete, to be happy. He did not need us. And that is the grace of God. Secondly, human adoption is restricted, but God's adoption is broad. The inheritance of the father, the father's inheritance would be shared between the children. But with God, as we, you become a child of God, all that is his is yours. And all that is yours is your brothers and sisters. It's all shared. And human adoption is made without sacrifice. But God's adoption costs a great price. I know, in order to adopt in the world, you, you might have to pay for a lawyer. You might have to... But it's... It's peanuts in comparison to the price that it costs for God to adopt you and to adopt me. The divine cost was the price of his eternal begotten, eternally begotten son. Paid on our behalf and God sealed our birth certificate with the blood of his son, Thomas Watson says. Human adoption confers only earthly benefits. But he, God's adoption confers to us all the heavenly blessings. All the riches of, of Christ in glory are ours. He grants us more than goods. 
And if you're thinking in terms of goods, you haven't understood it yet. He gives you a new life. He gives you a new heart. He gives you a new mind, a new, uh, a new inheritance, a new home. He gives you eternal life. That's why prosperity gospel is so out of tune with scripture. <laughs> to diminish all that Christ has come to do to earthly possessions, to health in this world, and to prosperity and wealth in this world. That's, that's why they're so out of tune with what Scripture says, because if they understood, they would see how all of that, how all of the riches of this world pale in comparison to what is reserved for us in Christ Jesus in the heavenly places. Our treasure is not on this earth, but in heaven. Our permanent home is not here but in heaven, in all of this, because of what Christ came and did for us, which is represented on this table. That's what this table stands for, for the work of bringing peace. Listen to what Paul says to the Colossians, having made peace through the blood of his cross. How is it that we can have peace through the blood of his cross? He gave himself that you and me might have peace with God, that we might have peace within, that we might have peace with one another. Let me say that again, because it is important and so often neglected by us. It is to have peace with God, and usually we're quite clear on that. We don't really argue that. It is to have peace within us, and that sometimes causes us a little bit... uh, discomfort but it's to have peace as well with others and i think in no other place in scripture this is more beautifully said than in the words of paul to the ephesians for he himself paul says of christ is our peace who has made both one speaking of jews and gentiles who has made both the, the, the two main categories, according to scripture, of, uh, of people in this world. You, the, if you had to divide uh, uh, the, the peoples of the world into two categories, uh, in, uh, of, of the nation ethnical division in scripture, it would be Jews and Gentiles. That's the, the two main div- the, the main division that exists. In what we read in Ephesians, he made him himself is our peace, who has made the both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, the enmity that existed between these two groups, that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two thus making peace, that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near. For through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. That's what Christ came to do, to bring peace not only between God and man, but between man and man. And now we can have truly peace between both, between us all. We, I've heard it said recently, and I, and I know it is true, it is true of every single congregation. We wouldn't necessarily gravitate towards one another were it not for Christ. We're such a distinct, uh, different kind of, kinds of individuals. What keeps us together is not uh, any other mutual uh, shared interests 
If it is, that's wrong. What should keep us together and bring peace amongst us is our identity in Christ. That is why some of these churches that are uh, built along national borders like Portuguese-speaking churches or uh, Spanish-speaking congregations. That's why they are so uh, countercultural and are so anti-biblical. Because you're making something to be your common denominator, marker of identity that is not meant to be. The thing that unites us is the one Spirit and the one Lord, not a shared uh, uh, national identity or uh, language. It is through Jesus that peace is preached to us. Peace with God and peace with one another. And that's what we see in the Lord's table also. It is a marker of our, of our reconciliation with the Father through the atoning death of Christ. Uh, the chastisement of our peace, Isaiah says, was upon him. And we see that there. But it is also a marker of our renewed fellowship with one another where we say, I and you are one. We share the same bread. We sit at the same table. We have the same Lord. Whatever else we might forget about this evening's uh, sermon, whatever else you might not remember from this evening's service, brothers and sisters, remember this, that to be a peacemaker, it is to be like Christ. And how was he a peacemaker? He did not quant- count equality with God as a thing to be grasped. He did not clutch as his rights. He did not hold to the prerogative of deity and of eternity. He humbled himself. He came in the likeness of men. He humbled himself even to death of the cross. Why? Because he was not thinking of himself. Because he was thinking of his brethren, of those that God had given him to save. And that's why Paul, in this context, is able to say, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. What is he asking of us? To be the same kind of peacemaker like Christ was. To abandon uh, putting ourselves first, to humble ourselves, and to pursue reconciliation first and foremost. Not at the expense of truth like the world does it. Not at the, at the expense of, 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 uh, of biblical principles like the world does it. But pursue peace and holiness like Paul under the inspiration of, of the Spirit says. So forgetting self, humbling self. Stop thinking about how offended you can be and how you've been hurt by what this person said and what the other person has said. And, th- and think of how you have offended Christ every single day of your life and still he comes and he forgives you. Forgive one another. That's being a peacemaker, not a strife maker. So often we have this contentious being let us not be like that brethren let us be peacemakers not warmongers for theirs for they shall be called sons of God and that is it may God give us the grace to see this blessed glorious truth may God give us the grace to make us reflections image bearers of Christ uh, of the prince of peace May God give us the grace to truly act and be like true children of the God of peace whom we serve.